This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Good morning. Um, So our scripture reading today will be from Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 31. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed up or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. 
and I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together but none to quench them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Emmaus. Much better weather than last Sunday. Um, I see, I think more people brought layers this, this Sunday, just in case, um, than, than last week. Uh, I appreciate Lee for, for sticking it out from Oklahoma. It was a little cold. He, uh, he brought a headband to keep his ears cold. It was probably the one Sunday I regretted wearing flip-flops, and I don't really say that too often. So I'm, it's gorgeous outside. This is wonderful. Um, I'm excited because this morning we start the book of Isaiah. And kind of depending on how you count it up, it's one of the top five longest books in the Bible. It's like, it's gigantic. And on top of its sheer size, it's the second most directly quoted book in the New Testament. And there, there's actually a bunch of indirect quotes or allusions too. Paul and Peter often allude to the book of Isaiah. And, and allusions are like concepts or phrases that come from Isaiah that are not necessarily direct quotes. For example, it's likely that Paul's concept of the fruit of the Spirit is something that comes from the book of Isaiah. It's pretty hard to overstate the scope and the impact of the book of Isaiah. It's, it's also a book with a ton of style. I saw someone call it the, the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. Others have thought of Isaiah as the Old, Old Testament Paul. Like just like Paul had this huge impact on the early church, Isaiah, the prophet, had a huge impact on the Jewish people. Listen to what, uh, this is a really good quote. I like this quote from Ronald Youngblood. He's an Old Testament scholar and one of the original translators of the NIV version of the Bible. This is what he said about Isaiah. He said, the measure of any book's greatness is not to be looked for in the quantity of its lines or paragraphs or pages, but in the quality of its context, contents. The book of Isaiah is great because of the breadth, breadth of its teaching, because of the importance of its message, because of the sweep of its subject matter. The Colorado River, the Colorado River has many gorges, but none is so magnificent as the Grand Canyon. 280 miles long, four to 18 miles wide, and over a mile deep, it beckons to the visitor to marvel at its beauty and plummet's depths again and again. In much the same way, the Old Testament has many prophetic books, but none is so magnificent as Isaiah. 66 chapters long and thus a miniature Bible in itself, it beckons to the reader to revel in its beauty and plumb its teaching again and again. And I really like that last part, a miniature Bible in itself, it beckons to the reader to revel in its beauty 
and plummets teaching again and again. So how do we approach a book like that? And some of you who made it through our Matthew series might already be doing the math and say, oh man, I think we're gonna be preaching through Isaiah for like the next five years. Don't worry, <laughs> we're not preaching straight through the whole thing. We're gonna, we're gonna break it up into five major sections. Uh, the plan is to do one or two major sections a year, kind of about 12 weeks each. Uh, this first part, this first part that we're calling our image problem covers the first 12 chapters and will take us about eight or nine weeks before we shift gears towards Christmas. Yes, it's already October. Um, so I broke it up because I thought it would be easier for us to approach this miniature Bible in itself by having five, I think, more manageable parts to deal with. Um, it kind of feels like multiple road trips uh, to this prophetic Grand Canyon. It's hard to cover everything in one trip, much less appreciate all the beauty of a book like this. Well, so breaking it up, I think will help us. But I think one of the things that did kind of stress me out a little bit is how do you introduce a book like this? Like, how do you summarize what a book of the Bible this massive is about in one sermon? How could I possibly give an accurate picture of 66 chapters in one of the most significant books in the entire Bible. And I've probably read or listened to the book of Isaiah a couple of dozen times in the last year. And I would stop and I would think, how would I summarize this whole thing? And it's kind of something that like itched at my brain a little bit until I realized that Isaiah actually gives us a summary of his work in chapter one. And he must have just kind of put it all together, which most scholars think he, he put this all together at one point and was like, dang, this is huge. I should probably summarize this. So if you look at verse one of chapter one and verse two or verse one of chapter two, it's almost like he starts it twice. So we get this, we get this introduction to the whole book of Isaiah in, in, in the chapter, in Isaiah chapter one. So that was kind of a relief. How do I summarize this whole work? I don't have to, we can just walk through Isaiah chapter one and that will give us a summary of the whole book of Isaiah, this little miniature Bible in and of itself. So let's pray and then that's where we'll start. We'll just jump in chapter one and, and hear Isaiah's summary of this book. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you that we can come in this gorgeous weather, that we can sing songs and worship you and praise you and, and bask in your glory, both in your word and in your creation, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we, as we behold your glory, that, that that would begin to transform us more and more into the image by the beauty of your gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom as we look at this book that's just overwhelmingly huge um, and significant, Lord. I pray that your spirit would work to open our eyes to just see the beauty and, and often sometimes confusing passages of the Old Testament. I thank you um, for other teachers that, that, uh, that bring us along in this journey. I thank you for the resources that you bless us with, even in the, in the position that we're in this country today. And Lord, I pray that that would just mean we, we understand and we know more about who you are at the end of the day. Uh, in your name I pray, amen. 
All right, so we're going to kind of cruise through this chapter. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I've got a couple over here. Happy to throw you one. Normally, we put it on the seats. Um, obviously, you got your phone. But we're going to walk through Isaiah chapter 1. So I'm going to reference verses fairly, quick, fairly quickly as we kind of walk through these different verses. Um, so let's start in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It's the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Now, did you, it's kind of quick. Did you catch what God said right there in that last part. He said, the ox and the donkey know its master, but Israel doesn't know me. That's how the 66 chapter book starts with the statement that donkeys understand better than the very children that God has personally raised. Kind of ouch. Welcome to the book of Isaiah. And it's, e it's easy for me to read that and think that it's like, maybe that's some kind of like sick burn by the prophet. But God is speaking and he uses the phrase, children that I have reared. Because in reality, this is God grieving the fact that the children that he, he personally raised to reflect his glory in the world to look like their very father in heaven. The children that God personally rescued from slavery gave everything to them so that they could be a light to the surrounding nations. The children that God rescued for the very purpose of reflecting his image to the entire world, those children don't even recognize their father, much less, much less image him, much less look like him. This is a bad start. How could the children God raised to look like and bear his image to the world not even recognize the father that raised them? What happened? Well, Isaiah gives us some historical perspective in the first verse. He says that this vision of Isaiah is during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And that kind of tells us a lot. It gives us a perspective. Those are kings of Judah, which is the territory that includes the city of Jerusalem. And those kings tell us where we are in the history of God's people. And you could read the book of Kings and Chronicles in your Bible. And if you read those books, you'd see that Israel as a nation hasn't really done so hot leading up to the time of Isaiah. Basically, Peak Israel would be King David and King Solomon, both leading the nation to image God to the world. But since then, we've had essentially 200 to 250 years of downward spiraling before we get to the kings that are mentioned here, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So we're at this point after 200 years, 200 plus years of this downward spiral, that the Lord calls his prophet Isaiah and he starts this giant book with this cutting statement, donkeys know their master, 
better than my very own children know me. That's a problem because without God, there's no way they can look like or image God to the world around them. God's children have a serious image problem. And spreading, and here's the thing, spreading the glory of God through the image of God has actually been God's purpose from the very beginning. This is, this is how it started with Adam even before the fall. Uh, a couple of weeks ago in our discipleship conversation, we talked about how the purpose of Abraham when God called him was to be a blessing to the nations. So spreading God's glory by his people, imaging him to the world is why God called Israel out of Egypt. And that's the whole purpose of us as disciples of God to reflect the image of God, the very glory and beauty of the gospel to those around us. But here Israel has totally and utterly forgotten about God. And without God, they can't image God. They can't fulfill our purpose in the world They can't display his glory to the nations around them. Look at that verse four. This is how he describes his children after 200 plus years of forgetting God. He says, ah, sinful nation, a people laden or weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forgotten the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Here, the very children of God that were raised up to be a light to the nations, to reflect the very glory of God himself, those people are now weighed down with iniquity, with sin, to the point where he calls them offspring of evildoers. Israel here is not a light to the nation. They're corrupt children who don't even remember God. So of course, they're not imaging God to the world. Look at how he describes them in verse six. It says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed up, out or bound up or softened with oil. From head to toe, there's nothing good in them, just pus and scabs. That's how God has to describe his children. Disgusting from head to toe. This is what happens when you try to image God without God. And he keeps going in verses seven and eight. Look at how God describes the nations that he personally raised up and starting in verse seven. It says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. He's like, you've forgotten about me and it shows because without me, you can't image me. Without me, you're, you're like a lodge in a, in a cucumber field. He's saying that without me, you're like a temporary structure sitting in the middle of a field. I thought of like, a, like just an old rickety shack that you found in the woods. Without me, the city I speak of, like my very own daughter, that city is now an embarrassment. So here in Isaiah, here in this time in Israel's history, this giant book, God's people have a major image problem, hence the the title of the series. And they have that problem because they've turned away from the person and the process of God for so long. 
so long that they don't even recognize the father that raised them. So without God, of course, they're unable to image God or to be a light in the world. Now, if you're wondering why we would start a series about a country on the other side of the globe that had some issues with God about 2,700 years ago, uh, if you're wondering that, then you're asking a good question. Uh, if you're not wondering that, I either put you to sleep already or one of the many ladies who have recently studied the book of Hebrews, props to the ladies for that, kind of put the guys to shame on the quarantine study front there. But either way, we should stop for a second and talk about why the nations of Israel, their failures, why the nation of Israel and their sacrifices and their wars and their kings and their cities, why all those things even matter. Why does that matter for us today? How does the, how does the interaction between God in a culture so far removed from our own, from our own, actually teach you and I about the gospel? How does Isaiah, to put it in Emmaus terms, help me see the beauty of Jesus so that I can be transformed more and more into his image? And I mentioned the Hebrew study because the book of Hebrews goes a long way to help us understand why the book of Isaiah matters for us today. And what the book of Hebrews teaches us is that all this stuff in Isaiah wasn't ultimately about some random city where God had this arbitrary temple where a priest would just kill an animal every day. Now, hear me, this stuff served its purpose, purpose for its time, but those things were never the ultimate reality. It was never ultimately about a king of a tiny little nation in the Mediterranean which is why Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Jesus knew what the book of Hebrews says so clearly. Jesus knew that God was actually designing a real system that included a city, a temple, and a nation that existed in real time and space over thousands of years. God was using the history of a particular people ultimately to show us and help us understand more about the current rule and reign of Jesus. Isaiah was written to help us understand more about the gospel. Paul actually says to the church when he's speaking of the Old Testament, he says, quote, these things were written down for our instruction. I mean, I think about even the situation in, in the first nine verses that we've read already. I'm not gonna name names. Can anyone think of any groups of people in our country that associate with Jesus and God, but don't really act like Jesus would, or as we would say, don't really image God? Does that happen today? I mean, are there any Facebook or Instagram profiles you're aware of that use all those Jesus-y words, but honestly just look like or read like everyone else's that don't use those words? I mean, you think that's what God means when he wants us to image God to the world? And I think this is my favorite. And most of us have heard this Gandhi quote. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I hear that quote and I, and I think, hey, Gandhi, Isaiah was actually complaining about this a few thousand years before this point. And if you think that as a church... As Christians, 
We need to grow in our ability to look like Jesus, to grow in our ability to image God to the world, then we're definitely in the right book. Look at verse 10. In a sense, you can see how God talks. This is how God talks to those Christians that are unlike our Christ, his children that don't image him. In verse 10, he says, hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He calls the children who have forgotten him, not just people of Gomorrah, but rulers of Sodom. And that's like a, like a really old school sick burn. That's worse than calling a native um, a Texan or something like that. Um, but he's trying to get, the, get their attention. He's like, hey, listen up, give ear. You need to hear how I feel when my very own children don't image me. Look at what he says to them in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. Do you know what God hates the most when his children don't image his glory to the world? He hates that they go through the motions to worship when it doesn't make any difference in their real life, when it doesn't actually transform them more and more into his image. What's interesting is sacrifices, those are God-given ways in the Old Testament to help the people of Israel understand the gospel. Sabbaths, offerings, incense, all of those things are God-given ways that God has given his people to help them understand the gospel. All of those things are the motions, the rhythms, the liturgy God's children go through to better know, to better know God and to better image God. Verse 13 is really important. He says in verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I cannot endure your sin and you taking me seriously. Those don't go together. And that's the key is he cannot endure even proper religious practices when they don't actually change his people more and more into his image. He's weary and burdened by his children going through the motions, but continuing to look like the world around them. The soul of God hates worship if it doesn't lead to his people being a light in a dark world, to his people imaging God to the world. He cannot endure Christians that don't look like their Christ. And doing all the religious things, even the right ones, and it not resulting in God's people imaging their father, it not resulting in us looking more like Jesus through the beauty of Jesus, God calls that an abomination. And that's intense. But, but, I, but I think you think that way also. 
Think about this. What's more infuriating than pastors or priests who have used their position to abuse children? What's more infuriating than knowing parts of the church helped continue segregation? What's more infuriating than having nice church folks enjoy a potluck while they mock other people groups that are suffering or marginalized? Going through the motions and not actually imaging God, that's a serious image problem. And God's not even finished talking to his children. These people he calls the rulers of Sodom. Look at what he says in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. And these are actually four commands. Wash, clean, remove, cease. He's just saying, stop it. Just stop. And he goes on in verse 17 to give us five things he wants us to start. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What does it look like to image me? What does good look like? Go after justice, correct oppression, care about the fatherless and the widow, care about the people that nobody cares about. And if God raised up this nation, Israel, to image him, that nation has to be characterized by a just and merciful society. A society that cares not just about the rule of law, but the oppressed, the marginalized, the fatherless, the widows. This was always God's plan for his nation. This was always God's plan for Israel to image God as a just society to the world. Now, as we work, as we work our way through Isaiah, we're going to talk more about the similarities and differences between the nation of Israel and the current people of God, the church. But for a second, think about what James says to the church in James chapter one, verses 27. I'll read it. James says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is one of those allusions to Isaiah. James says, religion or real worship that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is saying, real worship of God, pure and undefiled worship in the Christian church leads to a people that look different than the world around them. A people who are known for caring about those who the world doesn't care about. Real worship leads to a people who image God. We have to, this is hard to prepare for. We have to stop and sit on this for a second. We should reflect on the weight of what James is saying. Does your worship lead you to look more and more like Jesus? Or does your worship help you fit in in the world around you? And if that's the case, why? Does your worship lead you to consider more and more of God throughout the week? 
so that you can image him for his glory and for the benefit of others? Or does your worship not even enter your mind on Tuesday as you pursue your glory for your benefit? Do you ever think about why? If we become more selfish as we worship, if we become more about ourselves and less about God and others as we worship, then we've touched on a raw nerve of our father. And not only have we grieved him, we've burdened him with the practice that he's called an abomination, toeva, the same word that he uses for some of the worst sexual sin in the Old Testament. So what do we do? How do we fix that? In a sense, God's person and process is a large part of what the first 12 chapters are about, dealing with our image problem. And that's kind of what we'll unpack over the next couple of months. But look at how God responds to his people right now. He, he gives us some hope in verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He's like, let's talk about this. You don't image me, but you will. You will. In verse 19, he says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's like God is pleading. He's pleading with the children of the day. He's like, please, please listen to what I'm saying. I want what's best for you. I want you to image me. I'm your father because I love you. And sadly, I think the next set of verses are God's statement or God's grief over children who have spent the last 200 years in this downward spiral and have essentially forgotten about God. He looks at the nation that he rescued and look at what he says in verse 21 how the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and the companions of thieves. Everybody loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. This is real grief from our real heavenly father. And this is the darkest point in the chapter. This is a summary of their image problem. And this is what forgetting the person and process of God leads to. It's like mixing expensive wine with water. It's like precious metals turning into dross or trash. It's like the city God calls his daughter becoming a whore. This is a real image problem. And this is dark. Where's the light? Where's the good news in this? How did God, how did God bring Israel out of this pit? How could we be brought out of this pit? Look at what God does in verse 24 through 26. Right after the hardest statement about the state of his people, he says, therefore the Lord declares, 
Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So much is packed into this little section and Isaiah is going to unpack this throughout the rest of the book. But I want to take note of two things, the process and the person of God in this passage, the process and the person. This is, this is the person of God in this passage. This is a father who sees the people he describes as scabbed up in pussy from head to toe. The people he describes as a shack in the field. The same people who do things that his soul hates. And that same God says to those people, I will get relief. I will turn my hand. I will restore. I will transform you into the faithful city because I'm committed to you and you're my children and I love you. That's the person of God that we worship. But look at the process. See what he says in verse 25. He says, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. This is a picture of fire melting away the impurities in a precious metal so that it would shine pure and undefiled. This is the process of God's wrath, not to destroy, but to refine. This is the process of God bringing his hand against you, not because he's bitter, not because he's angry, but because he's our heavenly father, because he loves us. This is the same loving person that's also determined to use his wrath to refine you and mold you into his image. That's the process he brings, the wrath of his hand out of love, refining you so that you could be called the faithful city. And that's a difficult process to follow. Like how can we trust, how can we trust a God who both loves us and yet brings his hand against us? How can we hold both the person of God and the process of God together? How does it make sense that God's children would suffer in this world at the hand of God who says he's loving and committed to us? How do we reconcile those two things? Well, it makes sense because God has already shown us that his process works. It makes sense because in the gospel, Jesus has gone before us and has already shown us the way. He has literally already followed this process. And we can look at Jesus and say, I trust the process of my father because I can see the perfect image of God in the face of Jesus. Jesus trusted the process and now Jesus is ruling and reigning on the eternal throne where there's fullness of joy and everlasting life. Jesus is why you can trust the process and the person of God. Jesus is also why, Jesus is also why even in this passage, 
We can do things that God calls an abomination and yet God continues to love us, not because of what we did. God continues to love us because we're united to Jesus. God is so committed to his children. You have love because of the perfect son of God, not because of how you followed a process. And God is just as likely to give up on you as he is on Jesus. Jesus is the reason why we can trust the person and process of God in the gospel. The question is, the difficult part is how will you respond to the person and process of this God who is dead set on transforming you into the image of his son? Look at, look at verses 27 and 28. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Do we struggle to bear the image of God to the world? Of course we do. Gandhi didn't say anything new about us. Isaiah was saying this 3,000 years ago. The question is, are we going to work with and begin to trust this God? Or are we going to continue to rebel? Do we push back against the suffering he's brought in our lives to change us? Or do we repent of the fact that we don't trust the person and we don't trust the process? Do we recognize that we fall short of the image and the glory of God? Or do we rebel and we push back against what God is saying about his children, what God is saying about us? And we'll see these themes throughout the whole book of Isaiah. We'll see God confronting his people with their image problem. We'll see God revealing his person and process in the death and resurrection of his son. And we'll see two responses through this entire book. We'll see two responses. We'll see the response of humility and repentance that leads to precious metal growing in beauty through refining fire. And we'll see the response of pride and rebellion that leads to some other person or process that verse 31 says will burn together with none to quench them. The question for all of us, when we're confronted by God with our image problem and his person and his process, the person and process is made most clear in the death and resurrection of his perfect son. The question that we all have to answer is which response will we be? Pride or humility? Repentance or rebellion? Makes all the difference. And the good news, the good news is that God, just like with Israel, God will transform his children into his image. He will. Why fight him? Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, a God determined to solve our image problem through the gospel, the clearest expression of the person and process of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we're humbled as we come before you. Lord, we 
like Isaiah who experienced you firsthand said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Lord, we cannot help but reflect your image and see how far short we fall of that, Lord. Lord, I pray that the perfect exact representation of your image, the gospel of Jesus Christ would be an encouragement to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us assurance that we stand in your son as your children. And I pray that your determination and your love for us would only motivate us to trust you in your process more. Lord, I thank you for giant books like Isaiah that can help us wrestle with these difficult things. Give us wisdom by your spirit to use your word to image you to this dark world. Thank you again, just for this beautiful weather and a chance to worship and praise you for who you are. In your name I pray, amen.